Welcome back to Jokerman. It's uh, that it's back. We're doing another episode. Here we are again. It's either Monday or Thursday or maybe Tuesday or Friday, depending on whether or not we were late with the edit this week. Wow, well, we've really gone off to a, a beautiful <laughs> a start. With bang start. Witnessing our um, fumbling is uh, Ray Paget. <laughs> You forgot to even say our names. I'm Ian. I was debating just not saying anything this whole time. Just, just see where this <laughs> the awkward silences take us. It usually, you know, it's, it, we just got to get past the first ten minutes, and then, and then it's golden. That's that's the time that the the, uh, the alcohol starts kicking in, and everyone starts uh, getting warm and fuzzy. Uh, we don't drink on this show. This got, is a well, teetotal speak, program. Okay, speak for yourself. That's the only way you can understand Bob Dylan's music is by being completely dead sober and retaining <laughs> your semen. Uh, and uh, that combination, then you, you then you can get, start to get it. Yes, I'm Ian. Uh, Evan is here as always, and we're joined by Ray Paget of, uh, of numerous different places of twitter.com of uh, 33 and a third wrote a great uh, book on I'm your man, uh, Leonard Cohen. Um, great, uh, great album. Jazz please. Great. It's one of one of the greats. Uh, and uh, obviously maybe most um, uh, appealing to uh, the listeners of the Jokerman podcast is the flagging down the double E's Substack newsletter that covers like every concert that he's ever performed, basically, right? Like all across his entire era, right? I'm working towards it, you know, one at a time. At the rate I'm going, I'll be about 400 before I, I hit it. But uh, <laughs> wow, we're getting there. They don't they don't call it the never ending tour for uh, for nothing. Uh, speaking of which, the, there's no other way that we we're okay. So we're we're convened here. Anyone listening to this, you've read the episode description, I assume. We're here to talk about the 1986 tour, uh, specifically a live show in Sydney with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of wrapping up the springtime in New York era here with a look at Bob at the very, very end of, uh, of that, that first decade or first half decade of the eighties before he really went into the wilderness. But, uh, but before we get into that tonight, Ray, you did go to the first two shows of the tour, as I understand it. Is that right? That's right. Milwaukee and Chicago. Last, so you were there week. when, when Bob Dylan returned to the stage, that, that uh, historic event. Riverside, uh, Riverside and Milwaukee. It was, it was everything I hoped and dreamed it would be. We should you honestly know, I, just stop you right there because we could go on for a long time <laughs> discussing why well, we gotta that spend, is. We got to spend a couple minutes. Give us give us some highlights or or some uh, some some sense of what it was like to be in the room with all the magic happening because we're not going to be there for another uh, 10, 15 days. Well, let me point. let me ask you guys how. Are you listening to recordings? Are you following set? List? No, we've like we've how, decided how not. Are you we're following to keep the it? set list. We're following the set list, but we're not listening. I've listened to little snippets. You're listening. I listened to a little bit, but Trader. I did not listen to certain songs. <laughs> like I wanted to listen to out of curiosity for the Milwaukee shows. Of like this is of historic significance. I, it's my duty to know what happened there. To some extent, I. I dabbled, but I did not listen to like the stuff I'm really anxious to hear. And I did not watch any video. Um, and that's how I want to keep it. And Ian is even abstaining further and he's not even listening. Talk about semen retention. 
Yeah, exactly. Ian's, I, I was, I was, okay, I'm not going to make that joke. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, should we have a Black Rider lyric reference here? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We know we know the set list at least. We were following the set lists, right? Um, and uh, so we were having a great time on Twitter. Like that night, even not being there was just so fun. Great time on, to be on, on the computer Bob Dylan, with your friends. Uh, Bob Dylan Twitter was was like a, a fiesta. It really was a, a just a, a a wealth of of riches of posts online that night. But what was it like inside the theater? What what give it to us straight? It was. One of the most exciting Dylan shows I've I've ever seen. Um, just because. How many have you seen? Sorry to interrupt you, but like, how are we? T- Thirty-four. How many- oh, wow. Thirty-four. Uh, as of Chicago, I got one more. I'm seeing uh, the first night in Philly um, at the end of the oh, month. Oh boy, I'm going to be in the area. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think I've. It's been years since I've seen the first show of a tour. I probably have, you know, way back when. But obviously. He's never taken two years off, much less had a new album during that time. So, right. you know, I'd be curious to know how many of the people in the Milwaukee audience, which was, it was a very small theater, were actually from Milwaukee. Because it mm-hmm. seemed yeah. like pretty much everyone I met had traveled in. And, you know, some from, you know, Chicago or something. It's not like everyone was playing from Europe. But I think a lot of people did what I did, which is like, this is, it feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity if you can get there. Pilgrimage. Right. Worth doing. Making the Hajj. Yeah, yeah, I was I was pleased it was it was set there. You know, it seemed like it was going to start on the West Coast, and I live in Burlington, Vermont, and I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull that off. But I'm from Chicago. Milwaukee is only 90 miles away, so like I could <laughs> drive home after the show. It was perfect. And yeah, it Incredible. was it was a uh, so the excitement was extremely high. I was listening to some of the recordings and even the Chicago show. Like the the thing that struck me in Milwaukee is he so he does. A, you know, a bunch of new songs, including I Contain Multitudes. The Milwaukee audience, right. I Contain Multitudes, every single time he said that line was like a huge applause line. <laughs> and it's like 30 seconds later, he says it again. And once again, I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, and in, in Chicago, no, people weren't doing that because you were applauding like 30 times in the song. But right. <laughs> like, that's how excited people were in Milwaukee that every single time. It's hard to un- overstate the magnitude of what this show those shows, I mean, represent who can, who competes with that really in terms of like the excitement, the depth of excitement there for like an artist's return after the pandemic. There's no one else who's been recording for 60 to seven, like almost 70 years at this point and just released like one of the greatest records of his entire career at the age of 79 and then has come back in the middle of the pandemic at the, you know, it's, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there era. Uh, and he's just immediately apparently playing these triumphant live shows and his beautiful white blazer with his marionette arms up there and the piano that covers like 75% of his entire body, as far as I could tell, judging. Okay. So Ian, Ian, you have seen still images and oh, that seen has the images. surely ruined it for you. And don't we see forget, him, you're going to go, Oh, I've seen this before. Don't forget the dapper white, wide brimmed white hat that he walks out oh, with he and walked, never puts he on. D- he just marches out with his hat. the hat and doesn't wear it. But but he clearly was wearing it because especially when we he had pronounced hat hair. Never put the hat on. But backstage, <laughs> he was rocking the hat. Comes out, holding it, real bad hat hair. Just a, pheno- a phenomenal look all around. Incredible. How did the how did the band sound? Because it's a new, it's a mostly new lineup of players. Tony is there, obviously, but I think everyone else is new, right? No, Donnie Heron um, has been there oh, okay, for a million Donnie years is, at this okay. point. And technically, Bob Britt, one of the guitarists, is not new. 
he only did one tour pre-pandemic, so he's practically new, but he did a couple months in the fall sure. of 2019. They sound great. Um, given so some of the rumors flying around, honestly, if people have seen the last few years pre-pandemic, it kind of falls in line, even though half the people are different. It doesn't sound, I mean, the songs are different, but in terms of the band's sound, they really slot in in nicely with what he was doing with, with the old crew. Like right before this Milwaukee show, like hours before, this this seemingly legitimate rumor starts swirling around Dylan internet that there is a female backing singer. I saw that on Expecting Rain. Some stagehand saw this and he told a guy in the line that there's a female band. So at that point, of course, we're like, oh my God, what is this going to sound like? Like, is he just doing like street legal stuff? Like the hell is going on? (laughs) No, there's no female backing singer. There's new people, but it's very much in line with both rough and rowdy ways, but also really the last few years of his tour. And and the only things that have changed in those first two, uh, really the major set list changes were like the, two odd songs that were not from rough and rowdy ways. Those got mixed up and changed up. Like he played, did he, it was it melancholy mood in the first show. He stuck melancholy mood is stuck around of, of all things. Um, well, I've night was the jazzy and song soon he after, played in yeah, the first right. show that immediately disappeared. I'm sorry that your Tempest uh, material immediately got cut, Evan. Well, I still am really happy that that happened at the first show, and, uh, and I think Early Roman Kings has been in Early Roman every Kings has been in so heavy far. rotation. It seems yeah. it's been in every set for years at this point. Yeah, it's a it's an old chestnut. I'm for just really reason. happy. I would have loved to have seen, um, and I'm really glad that I did. One of the few shows I did get to see was during the like standards era, like the height of that. Because that I just I have a real soft spot for that, and we haven't covered it on the show yet, like officially. But um, melancholy mood. I mean, I'll just reiterate again. Like, I don't think that the the band, um, the sound that he got on Rough and Rowdy Ways. I don't really think it, it would have been possible for that record to have happened without that period doing that material. I, I don't know if you agree with that, Ray, but like to me, it feels like. The, there's a certain control and certain sensibility that he brought to rough and rowdy ways that feels like it had, it, it was born out of a certain, like uh, whatever happened during those seven years of, of those other records. Like, I mean, the, to uh, me, especially the sort of skeleton key of the standards is the vocals. Like who else can you think about yeah, at age 70, yeah. the vocals are kind of going downhill year after year, you know, fair enough. But then like 75, whoever old he was, all of a sudden they rocket back up to where they are today. And that appears to me to be purely a result of singing all these standards all these years. He seems like a gajillion standards and now his voice is as good as it's been in decades. It's really incredible. And and so to, I was just really happy to see that Melancholy Mood made a uh, an appearance, even if it was just like a, a subconscious one. It seemed to honor that period, which like I feel like is such an important period in the lead up to Rough and Rowdy Ways. Very much so. I was joking with someone that Melancholy Mood was, in a way, the biggest surprise of that first show, which is sort of silly given the rumors and blah, blah, blah. But like, that's the one thing no one saw coming. We thought the Sinatra era, quote unquote, was over a few years ago. Right. So that I was like, what? Just like the uh, the religious, uh, the Christian era. Like, I think that maybe a key to understanding of what a lot of Dylan uh, 
his later career is, is that these eras that seem to come and go, they don't really ever go away. They kind of just become subsumed into his catalog, into his repertoire. And they, they, they become, that's why he gets better is because he's able to make that stuff. Um, it, it still finds its way in and out of his, his performances. Like in, in, in it, it makes it deeper and richer rather than just being a fad that just pops in and out of existence. It's like now he has this new power or this new, uh, what's the expression? Uh, key to his, uh, keychain. <laughs> his, uh, key to his key. Yes. I think that's the, ex- the expression. Is key that- <laughs> keychain. That well-known expression. We all know and love. It spoke to his will. What, what am I thinking of Ian? Um, I, you, you got me here flavor to his pack of gummy bears okay well okay so we could spend the literally entire episode talking about this we we we, we got to get to the business that we're here to talk about here shortly but i do have one last question for you right which is key west i've seen some differing reactions online some folks said it was a little slow a little ponderous didn't really come through live others have said it was the highlight of the set what what's your take so my take actually is both in the sense that there was a highlight of Milwaukee and I found it slow and ponderous in Chicago. Interesting. Which I think, and it's, it was not, he's actually changed it more since he's had an accordion and stuff. The two I saw, it was not that they were that, di- it's not that they were all that different. It was kind of just that Chicago with a the theater was warmer, you know, maybe I was distracted. Like a long, slow song like that, it depends so much what headspace mm-hmm. you, the audience is in. So I'm not surprised sure. that there's that different reaction. I was mesmerized in Milwaukee and you know Chicago for whatever reason I was I was kind of fading in and out so I I Dude, can see how special. yeah I can see how that would happen if you're not what was the really placement there. different uh was the placement in the set oh. much different wow just the might have just been the temperature of the theater I remember sitting there being kind of hot like <laughs> also again balmy. also Milwaukee people were standing most of the time again that sort of energy and you know right. it kind of helps especially with a long a long slow song just cuz you're and people were sitting in focused. Chicago yeah no one really stood Except for, you know, yeah, I've been wondering what it's going to be like at the beacon, like whether we're going to be, you know, stuck in our seats the entire time or if uh, everyone's going to get up on their feet and uh, feel feel the feel the magic of the music within them. Well, uh, let's stop here. Let's put a bookmark in this <laughs> because I, I feel we could go for a long time on it and we have to cover what is honestly a, a really major uh, thing for us to to cover on the show as far as Jokerman uh, content goes. We have not covered uh, the 1986 True Confessions tour with Tom mm-hmm. Petty and the Heartbreakers. And so, uh, Ray, it's, it's a, a pleasure to have you along to do this as it's like honestly a major gap in what we've done. I don't think we've like, there's no good reason why we haven't talked about this yet. And now's the time. There's just so much other good stuff to get to. That's the best reason. That's yeah. the best reason. But now we're getting to it. So here we are. Um, any, uh, well, you're, you're the man with the newsletter and all the actual, like, actual knowledge. We're the idiots that talk. Uh, so, Ray, do, do you have any sort of scene setting or initial kind of thoughts on this tour in general before we get to the, uh, the, the particulars of this set? Sure. Um, so scene setting, uh, we actually... Speaking of the the break we just had, there was this tour is also the first after a bit of a break. He had done mm-hmm. the real live tour in '84, which was quite short. Um, 
in the summer of 84 and then nothing in 85 and he hadn't done anything but a few years before 84. So this was his really biggest tour since, you know, 81, since the one you guys talked about um, a few weeks ago. Right. And it was also his first tour. He had prominent musicians in previous bands and obviously the band, which then became prominent, you know, through him. But this is really the first tour where he took an established, already famous in their own right band and just kind of hooked up with them. And then he would go on to do that with the dead again uh, the next year. And they did, they did, uh, they toured. So the show we're talking on is very, talking about is very early. It's a famous bootleg in February of 86 in Australia. But they toured for much of 86 um, with Tom Petty, and then he took some time off, um, recorded um, Down in the Groove, and toured a bit with The Dead. And then fall of 87, he came back for one more run with The Heartbreakers. Oh, I didn't realize. So he did the he did most of the Petty tour, then paused, did some other stuff, did the Dead sets, mm-hmm. and then came back and did more Petty after having done The Dead? Yeah, one more leg of Petty, like a year after he had finished wow. the first round. I didn't realize that somehow. Yeah, it's it's very different, uh, and it's kind of, kind of reminds me of like Rolling Thunder, you know, seventy five and seventy six, and seventy five right. is like lively and fun, and everyone's having the time the of their vibes. lives, and seventy six mm-hmm. is like nothing but shitty vibes, and everyone's just bitching right. about it and feels <laughs> terrible. That's like that's the sense I get of eighty seven. Uh, well, it uh, it's how it goes. It's it's the circle of life. What is the name of the um, famous bootleg of 1986? <laughs> That's one of the best parts about this. True Confessions for Carol. And who Carol is, <laughs> I don't, Carol? maybe you can enlighten us, Ray, but I certainly I don't know who Carol is. True Confessions was the name of the tour. So that part <laughs> makes sense. And then yeah, for Carol? When you add Carol, Oh, I'm my confused. God. <laughs> I don't know if you listened, Ray, to um, the game that I made, the torture that I put in under where I asked him, which ones were real and which ones were made up of uh, bootleg titles. But um, this is a prime example of why that is an impossible task. (laughs) See, true confessions for Carol would have absolutely been a fake one as far as I was concerned. And here we are talking about true confessions. It's like, as soon as you know, something like that exists, you're just like, all right, I guess I just can never know. I can't guess. Uh, It's, and like, this is the era when the, you know, these bootlegs are things people are actually trying to sell and make money off of. So you'd think you'd come up with a name that referenced Dylan or Petty or both, you know, <laughs> try to grab people in the, uh, in the record store. I'm looking at one right now, Bob Dylan and Tom Petty dueling banjos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, all uh, it's a very banjo heavy sound yeah. uh, that, that you get on this uh, on this sound. Maybe someone no. listened to it like played, you know, the recording was played too fast or something. You know? Yeah, I 1. think they're, times. <laughs> they're talking about um, the spirit of the show, which is, in fact, a, a good um, uh, poetic way of putting it. It is sort of like dueling banjos, Dylan sort of hitching his wagon to an already um, meteoric. Uh, star uh the the heartbreakers with tom tom petty with the heartbreakers and um that that is kind of like as you just were talking about sort of like a weird a theme that you see in late 80s dylan of he's like uh and even into 91 with like uh under the red sky that this kind of urge to um gain strength by like siphoning some power off of a bigger star um maybe as a way of kind of staving off this uh, ominous feeling that he's no longer the brightest one anymore. To me, this show has is chock full of very telling little moments 
that kind of uh, say something about that. Um, Dylan seeming to be in a uncharacteristic way, like trying to win this audience over. Yeah, very much. Oh, yeah. He's in a he's you can tell he's in a sensitive emotional state um, just based on the banter with the crowd alone, of, of which there's a ton, like way more than you get from Bob in virtually any other era of his career. Um, and that's, I think, one of the most interesting things about this. One of the funnest things about this for uh, freaks like us, at least. Uh, Ray, I did have a question uh, also before we start. You um, so like I think one of your earliest posts on uh, your Substack was about this set. Uh, this is like right, I think, just before the pandemic even started at this point. Um, but uh, you start you start this post claiming that this is Bob's greatest show ever. <laughs> are, are you still is are you still behind that take a hundred percent? Sure, I kind of like throwing myself in a hole I can't really dig out of. You know, my <laughs> my head knows that's not at all true, but in my heart, I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, best show ever. Why not? Awesome. Uh, well, let's. Uh, I guess let's maybe uh, let's get into it and see why uh, Sydney 1986 True Confessions for Carol is in fact Bob Dylan's greatest show of all time. Uh, Justine. Right, we're getting a call in from Carol. She says she's excited to hear what, uh, what we think. Uh, she's, I'm putting her on hold, but I'll, I'll pick it up again in, at the end of the episode. Got to give her some true confessions. Yeah. Uh, what, so who, what is, I, I, I will, I will start off. I will confess that I'm not a, a super knowledgeable petty guy myself. Uh, is I don't, but I don't think Justine is a Tom Petty song. Is this, this is just like an old kind of rave up kind of like rockabilly, like classic sort of thing. I'm, I'm guessing Ray, can you fill us in? Justine's the first of many like oldies, like kind of deep cut oldies, fifties rock and roll songs in the set. Right. There'll be a whole, a whole lot more, but yeah, I'd never, I'd never heard the song. I, it's the righteous brothers did a version. It's originally by it. Don and Dewey, but like that's, that's kind of, it, it kind of sets the template. Like in a way it's a perfect opener for me. It's, it's light. It's fun. It's, it's extremely high energy. And that describes most of the show. It's got that really goofy, um, keyboard intro which and which is really i think is one of the charming ways that the show um was well, it's just a charming start to it where you've got that and that it kind of blossoms into an actually really nice and groovy little uh keyboard part ladies and gentlemen will you welcome bob dylan tom petty and the heartbreakers and the Queens of Rhythm. But at the very beginning, it sounds a little bit stilted. And I think that that it kind of leads nicely into the the whole show. Very high energy most of the time. I mean, the keyboard, that sort of circus organ thing that Ben Montench is doing, it's like half the song. Note to listener, Ray later discovered in an interview with Ben Montench that this keyboard part is actually played by Bob Dylan himself. I was running if it was one of those things where like the band members are coming on one by one, you know, because like 
if you, right, if you, and like taking like, their station over, I think literally over half the runtime is basically Ben on bench doing this keyboard thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like there's barely there's barely a song there. Honestly, it's just kind of this yeah, riff. Basically, just Justine. Yeah, uh, Justine over and over again. Justine. Justine. I think it does have shades of, and I, I. This is sort of a bigger <laughs> kind of takeaway from this entire set. I think that I um, had listening to it and thinking about it, like. Uh, where it was stationed in Bob's career. I, I think this is already kind of like gesturing in the direction that he's going to be going, obviously with Petty himself, with the Wilburys in a couple of years at this point. Oh, yeah. This like clear kind of interest in throwing it back to this like really simple, innocent, straightforward time that Bob himself came up uh, in as a kid and that Petty might be looking at as kind of this like, you know, vaguely mythical era that occurred just before he was kind of, you know, taking his first steps as a, as an artist himself. Um, but yeah, all of these kind of classic songs uh, that they play together have this r- really like kind of proto Wilburys vibe and sound and feel to them. Um, and it just, it like knowing where they went two, three years after this uh, in that direction, like this makes so much sense in that kind of through line there. Uh, Bob looking for like a partner or like, um, because I, I think he feels, it, it seemed like he, he at this moment in time, felt uh, sort of on the outs and, like, isolated and alone, um, especially now that, uh, or especially once all of, like, the critics and fans had kind of turned on him and his move back away from the Christian stuff towards the more secular stuff didn't do a whole lot in terms of winning all of the people back towards his side the way that he might have anticipated it to. So sort of hitching his wagon to Petty at this point, and finding this group of guys, especially since Bob had always, you know, kind of just hired a new band every couple of years to go out on tour with and hadn't stuck with one specific group of people like we've seen him do for the most part for the last 30 years at this point. Um, I don't know. This is, you can see him like, this is, a, this is I think, a real like neat in-between moment from like where he was at to like where he's going to, where he's going to end up going and what he's going to be and end up becoming on the second half of his career after this. I mean, in Chronicles, he writes about this era a little bit. And one of the things, and he literally says he thinks Tom Petty was drawing more people to these shows than he was in oh, 1986. Definitely. So, like, he sort of deliberately was hot, was hitching his, you know, wagon to a big star, just like he would with the, with the Grateful Dead. It's the Hitch My Wagon tour. Yeah. <laughs> but it's mostly a Bob set for the, for, for, I'd say it's maybe like two third, one third breakdown between like mostly Bob songs and then some Petty songs. I think songs there's like four these... Petty songs. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're a Petty fan buying to see Refugee, well, he doesn't do Refugee, but he doesn't do American Girl. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't do many songs. Yeah, it would be right. really uh, disappointing for that. In a way, it's, it's such a strange uh, arrangement that where I'm sure Dylan sort of relied a little bit on Petty's reverence for him. Uh, at least that's how it comes across with this totally. show. That like yeah, you can definitely hear that like Petty and the Heartbreakers in general are all just super psyched to be up there, like playing the Bob Dylan classics. And you really hear yeah. that on the set list also, which is for the most part, like you know, kind of like a a greatest hits set. Certainly towards the beginning and towards the end. In the middle, he he dips uh, a little ways into like the Empire Burlesque cuts, some of them at least. But for the most part, like he's he's playing the hits for the fans and he's also playing the hits with this band who is just psyched to be playing the Bob Dylan hits with him. And after uh, Justine, which is, you know, as you said, kind of just a formless rave up um, as, as clear cut an example of a rave up as I can think. It's just kind of 
meant there to get your you up, to get to get your hips a shaken and your poodle skirt a blowing in the wind, <laughs> and um, that's how it sounds. And it's really kind of them just to setting the tone for what I think is the true opener and a really great and and unexpected uh, selection. I think for like a basically the first song in, in a yep. set, which is positively Fourth Street. <laughs> I mean, not giving too much away, but positively Fourth Street into Clean Cut Kid. Did you ever think you would see that at the beginning of the show? It's kind of crazy. Choice. I mean, you listen to like positively Fourth Street, or really these first three songs you're talking about. I feel like it kind of does set the template for the entire show. I mean, my sort of right. You know, I was listening to this again for the first time in a minute um, this week, and my my sort of theory behind it is like this is basically. Bob doing his best sort of arena rock show where it's got mm. enough of the Bob yeah. idiosyncrasies and weirdness. It's not just sort of shamelessly plugging the greatest hits, but at the same time, it's accessible. There's going to be songs, you know, they'll be close enough that if you're a casual fan, you could sing along with positively fourth street or knocking on heaven's door, but right. while still feeling, you know, kind of fresh, like this is not something Bob usually he either goes his own way or if he, does a greatest hits thing. It feels like really rote and, and pretty lame and sort of half-assed. Whereas this is like him really committing and really, it sounds like being really engaged in sort of a big eighties arena rock production on his terms. Totally. Yeah. yeah and it, you hear that in the, like, in, I think in the like commentary that he delivers as well, like he's really searching for a way to like get this audience, like on his side, like you can tell he wants some like appreciation and some love out of this. And you're getting that, a from the set list that he's playing where he's really kind of invested in a lot of these classics that he's playing and B just based on like literally like, you know, kind of telling jokes to the audience and letting them know what's going on behind his eyes. There's a lot to uh, a lot going on here. I think is just the short <laughs> a lot of psychology. That, yeah. A lot of friggin' psychology going on because you have these instances where Dylan is, uh, yeah, on one hand, trying to like he's pulling out positively Fourth Street to really set the the tone here, and it's like a song that is you know it was just a single you know, and I think basically recognized by people in the know who know his material as kind of one of the catchiest, the most like uh, straight ahead, just solid gold like hit songs that he has. But then he goes on to do it for like the rest of these few songs. They're they're contemporary or Ian's favorite word, contemporaneous stuff. I still don't think I say contemporaneous. You used to say it a lot more. <laughs> um, and so he's trying to thread the needle between being like I'm a you know a, a well known I'm a classic uh, artist who has songs that are just in the canon and. I still have new stuff that surely you want to hear. Yeah, exactly. Like clean cut kids. I mean, I think like yeah, I three kid. empire burlesque songs in a row at this point. Yeah. You got, yep. I mean, you got clean cut kid, which we can just sort of say, I mean, unless you have anything 
to add about uh, this rendition of positivity. Do you have a revisionist take what, on what do you think? Kid, right? Do you think Best this is Dylan song ever? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, no, but I mean about this version of positivity. But before we move on to Clean Cut Kid, what do we what do we think about how it sounds and how he pulls it off? Sounds great. He's uh, he's into it. I think the band uh, like makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I really like the way that the Heartbreakers sound all the way throughout this. They they, they sound like a really kind of easy and yeah. natural pairing for Bob. Honestly, much more so than the Dead. Much more so than the Dead. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. yeah no uh, question. Um, which on paper you might some... think the Dead would be. You know, on paper I think the Dead make a lot of sense. But when it, totally. whenever they actually paired up, it did not work. Yeah, the Heartbreakers yeah. sound great. Yeah. The, who plays guitar on this? It's Mike Campbell. There's some really really. Incredible soloing, like really tasteful and great soloing through this. He and like Ben Montench are kind of the stars of this show. Yeah. Many yeah. songs. Yeah. I think Bob is just kind of relishing having a, it, it, it sounds kind of like natural um, uh, for him to be singing over this music, especially like coming on the heels of the real live tour, which, you know, we've talked about and we've talked about again and kind of reconsidered, but like, just that that kind of like heavy, like weighty sound driven by, you know, McTaylor uh, just wasn't like a great match for, I think, a lot of what he was trying to do at that time. Um, and that, you know, there there are highs and lows. It's, it's an inconsistent period, I think, to say the least, um, live wise. Uh, but this just sounds like it's it's a really like smooth, easy, like match made in heaven kind of thing. Um, because, uh, you know, the, the Heartbreakers just sound like a totally just like, great simple straightforward rock band and that's what well, they they the heartbreakers it seems to me i'm not like a huge scholar of them but it seems like they really kind of were revolutionary in the sense that they were a kind of postmodern uh class they, like they were they didn't deconstruct rock and roll by any means but i think they were one of the first like big deal groups with tom petty at the helm to like do this knowing version of rock music that was kind of like felt contemporary and was able to avoid feeling hokey, kind of like something spoon, for example, is good at like this, this sort sort of these bands that are, they're very uh, savvy. They know the, the repertoire. They know it like Dylan knows folk music. They know like rock and roll and they're able to draw from it and, make the subtle nods where it's tasteful, but still be fully in the spirit of the thing. And so it's really like, I don't know how much Dylan thought about this as like a marketing move, but it seems like a really savvy and proved to be a really good move for him. Um, Whereas like with the dead, it's like, I think of, of the dead as like great at interpreting Dylan when like Jerry is singing, you know, or like they, they they can play Dylan's music really well, but maybe not they're not. Dylan. Yeah, they don't. With Dylan, it doesn't really work to elevate Dylan to a con, to a feeling of being contemporary. Where it's like an interesting thing about this show is that it seems like the Heartbreakers and Tom Petty's presence it kind of lifts Dylan up to being like, yeah, this guy's a legend, but he he knows it and he's like able to kind of in real time be like here grappling with things of his past and making new music happen for you. He's, he's able to do both things at once. Well, the heartbreakers, I mean, they're so much tighter than the dead. And again, on paper, 
Dylan himself is so loose. You might think, well, you know, loose goes with loose. That'll be a perfect fit. But like, you know, I've interviewed a few people sort of connected with this tour and, and with, with the Heartbreakers. And one of them was telling me like, in term, in, when they were rehearsing for this tour, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers basically told Bob like, we got it. If you get lost, like, we'll be here, we'll be on it, just come back to what we're doing. So they weren't yeah. going to follow Bob off into the wilderness if he, you know, got lost, which it was, you know, the late 80s, so sometimes he did. Like, they were just <laughs> rock possible. steady, and he could just find his way back to what they were doing. Whereas the dead, you know, they're going to go off too, and it just sort of would become shambles pretty quickly. Yeah, melt away, which I think, honestly, is 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 very similar to what he's been able to get out of the NeverEnding Band yeah. bands over the last 30 years, is just like an absolutely, like, just rock-solid uh, uh, set of players who just, like, know the discography in and out, are tight as hell and can let him do whatever he wants in terms of new vocal deliveries or, you know, cadences or whatever. And, but the, you know, the, the music is always just like a hundred percent, like rock steady right behind him. Um, you know, he needs, he needs uh he needs a steady hand sometimes as we've seen with uh, some it, of the studio records. It's um, kind of says a lot about his, the fact that he asked the dead, like, can I join you? Because that seems to be like a little bit of a, a low point if that's what he, if he didn't recognize, like, you know, he just needs people who can like really back him up. I don't know. No, it's that, sad that maybe the I'm dead reading too much into him. it. I mean, I'm glad it's, it happened. Yeah. It was the right Thank God it happened. Involved. They did like, actually the right thing probably for Dylan. moment for Bob Dylan where he sort of desperately hat in hand asks to join the Grateful Dead. And they're like, yeah, I mean, well, he talks, that's where in, in Chronicles, the moment happens where he really breaks down and there's that harrowing passage about having no connection anymore to what he was doing. Um, Thankfully, a a fateful trip to a local uh, watering hole where somebody was playing, uh, revived his creative spark, but, uh, which there, the odds of was, the odds that that story is true? I mean, what what do we think? Fifty percent, maybe. <laughs> I think it's true. That I'm a truther on it. Whether or not it's whether or not it physically, literally happened in reality that way, it's it's psychically true. It's spiritually yeah. true, and that's that's what's important here. Um, spiritual exactly. truth, like the kind of truth that you get on songs like uh, "Clean Cut Kid." Ooh, what um, a segue. Yeah. I don't, Beautiful. I'm sorry. I actually don't really want to talk about this that much because I don't remember <laughs> you. Talked, everyone knows what we have to say about <laughs> clean cut kid Burger Kings. That's it. On to the next uh, one. Wait, I think I actually have a really crucial point on this. I believe he doesn't say Burger Kings in this version. I think he just does say Burger King. It sounds like. That's that heartbreakers professionalism. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, they kept him tight. They cut the S. Somebody went up to him and was like, Bob, Love what you're doing with the song. Um, it is Burger King. <laughs> and we are getting spo- some sponsors from Burger King interested in, in the show. So we, if you could just say Burger King, uh, yeah. that would be great. That would be super. Uh, well, yeah, then we've got a couple more Empire Burlesque uh, cuts. We might need to, to yada yada through a little bit of this because this is a long ass set um, and we're already, uh, uh, we've been recording for a grip. Um, I will, I'll remember you and trust yourself. I actually think I'll remember you sounds really nice here and I've really grown on this, especially I'll since remember like, you is a good came song. out. It's I really good like music. It, yeah. It's just like, it's a really nice kind of touching song. And especially this like um, rendition of it that's stripped a little bit of the, you know, kind of alienating production um from empire burlesque i think just like 
you can see the bones of this song or hear the bones of this song more more clearly here. Uh, and Ray, I mean, he's, works he's, really well. he's played I Remember You like a number of times in relatively recent years, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, in, it's been in the never-ending tour on the last few years, but yeah, yeah. it's and lot, not a lot of Empire, but you know, he's not busting out when the neck comes falling from the sky, but I'll remember you stuck around. I mean, listening yeah. to these and, you know, some of the other Empire Burlesque songs here, like it kind of, and I'm a big Empire Burlesque defender as is, but it presents an alternate history of like, what if he just went in with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and exactly. just slammed uh, yeah. the whole goddamn album out in two and a half days? Like, it, they sound great on these songs. They, oh, yeah, they, they I mean... Seem, they could have just banged it out in the studio and, and with all of, yeah. And all of Tom Petty's records like sound, you know, they hold up real well from that time. So, and they feel, they feel spiritually like, it's not like, you know, the bootleg series version of when the night comes falling from the sky, which, which seems like it's sort of coming from a totally other place. It feels right. spiritually still similar to empire burlesque. It's upbeat. It's fun. It's poppy. Like there's, there's some synth from Benmont. So it's not that different, but like it just sounds, it's it's not instantly dated in the way that the actual album is. Yep. Well, that's, uh, it happened in another dimension and it uh, might've worked out a little bit better, but you know, even, even the detours in Bob's career brought him to where he would end up going. So we have to be thankful for that at the very least. Um, trust yourself is fine. Um, I don't know if you guys have anything to say about trust yourself. Well, I, Bob has a few things to say. He says, um, doesn't he oh, introduce this one of the first instances something? of him talking? Or am I thinking of um, a different song? I think you might be thinking of a different one. I think he's still just getting through the first couple songs here. Yeah, he, he starts going on some long monologues pretty soon, but I don't remember one specifically about Trust Yourself. Okay, no, yeah, I'm thinking of th- Seeing the Real You at Last, another song about yes. um, oh, yeah. uh-huh. a sort of yeah. similar, like... <laughs> Uh, can only mean yeah, one. You know thing. what I mean. One thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is. We'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to that. Next, though, we have what, what a surprise! One of the standards. Speaking and of the Sinatra years, this is a huge years. moment. We love this. We love. We've to hear. not gotten to the Sinatra years officially, as I've spoken of on the show uh, yet. But this is the first opportunity for us to organically talk about it with. Uh, Bob just pulling out of the hat that lucky old son and a really interesting, like a uh, straight ahead kind of rock ballad version of it that has no, um, it, it doesn't feel like the original at all. No. And it sounds nothing like the one he did on shadows in the night, you know, 20 no, some years no, this, later. I this mean, sounds like nothing. a Tom Petty song, but he, they first, you know, so that the, they first played together at Farm Aid in the pre in '85, and it was like a short set. I don't remember how many songs, but that "Lucky Old Son" was one of them. So I don't I don't know the full story about where it came from, but like this was in terms of them, you know, sort of bonding and figuring out their stuff together. It seems like that "Lucky Old Son" was was formative. Yeah, there's this appreciation that obviously we know Bob has, and that it's clear, you know, that that Petty has as well, based on this set um, with with Bob for these like pre-rock songs basically um and even something like this that doesn't sound or i mean you know the original version or the original versions of this song wouldn't have sounded like a heartbreaker song whatsoever they they fit in really naturally here it's like a really like i don't know they're they're almost like there's like a chameleonic uh if, if that's even a word uh, quality to the band right? not they're a really word just kind of like I, 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 it might be a word might be a, someone someone check us on that chameleonic let's see 
no. <laughs> that lucky old sound sounds great. Uh, Night comes falling from the sky sounds great, and everything in between. Um, it's cool. I, you know, they're, they're a great band. Heartbreak. Tom Petty, the Heartbreakers. Who knew? They're good. <laughs> you know, I like that lucky old son. Um, I like the original and I like the, the later, uh, shadows of the night version. Maybe you more. just like the song. I like the song. That's what I'm saying. It's a good um, song. so I like that he did it. I don't love this version compared to those, but I really, I love it. I love that they did this. There's a couple, and, um, there's a couple never ending tour versions in between the two too. Like this is a song he came back to like once a decade, even before he recorded it. There's one. Oh, so he was playing this uh, before wow. the, like in the nineties. Yeah. Like, there's uh, one, I think from 2000, that's phenomenal. He never played it often, oh my God. but like every, I've gotta check that out. every four, Jesus. five, 10 years, that lucky old son pops back up. Like he See, just lived with that him. song. That's why I, that's why this is, this is the gift that keeps on giving. I didn't even know that. Uh, Next, though, we have another song that, uh, as Bob says, like, what does he say? Like, this really holds up. Like, I- he says uh, something about the, like, I wrote this during my so called protest period. I have a song I wrote on Play for You Now. I wrote this song about 30 years ago, I guess. During my uh, so called uh, protest period. Anyway, I still play this theme song. Hold up pretty well. <laughs> That's the line I remember. My so-called yeah. protest period. Yeah, then he says, like, it holds up or something. Yeah, it's Masters of War. I hate when he does this song this uh, this way. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I can't bring myself to care about this too much. I'm sure if I were there in 1986 and I heard Bob Dylan with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers playing Masters of War right in front of me, I'd be like, hell yeah, this rocks. But, like, I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe- I just can't get raved up for Masters of War at this point. I, I think that that is, says something about the uh, the fact that right now it doesn't feel like war is as present. A, a, a war is form. not hot. War is war out. is war is not hot, and you know it's not hot to think out, too folks. much about war. Uh, but I don't know when when war seems like seems hot. You know, for lack of a better term, I <laughs> feel like this song in. when war is in. When war is happening and uh, everyone's talking about it, then then this song, even in its most um, hackneyed and obvious versions, it it starts to feel cathartic. Well, like at the yeah, like at the he played it at the ninety one Grammys when he got the Lifetime Achievement. It was right as the right, Gulf War was right. breaking out. It was like as bombs were dropping, and he plays Massive yeah. War. Right, and he did that shambolic version of it that oh, everyone absolutely was, uh, nuts. And then he gave that ridiculous speech. <laughs> He's in straw hat mode there. He was in real straw hat. He was in wiggle mode as we wiggle mode yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't played Masters of War since that stupid uh, old person Coachella thing, uh, and hadn't played Desert it- uh, <laughs> Trip. Desert Trip, yeah, and hadn't played it for six years before that, which I think uh, explains kind of his own inter or his own feelings about Masters yeah. of War at this moment. It's it's for uh, it's for the old fogies. It's no soon after midnight. It's true that the uh, the anti war movement doesn't have much steam right now, so I think you can probably gauge that based on how often he's playing Masters of War, how in it is to be anti war. <laughs> Maybe. 
Uh, all right, after that, we got a couple petty songs. I don't know that I really have much to say about either of these. The first one is like a Johnny B. Good, like like another Johnny. It's not Johnny B. Good, but he's saying Johnny B. Good. It's called Bye Bye Johnny. I think Johnny. it's a Chuck uh, Berry song, too. Like I think it's Is a, it? Okay. I looked it up because I didn't know the song, and I was like, oh, it's yeah. a petty song about But I think it actually is a Chuck Berry song. Like a reply right. <laughs> song to himself, basically. It's the sequel to Johnny Be Good. Bye bye, Johnny. You, Johnny weren't, was, you weren't good, so we're saying uh, bye yeah, bye to you. Uh, Johnny was good Darkness, enough. which is a great, a great song. Um, I mean, you know, the only, pretty, the really only interesting thing about, and I, I like Petty, I like all the performances, but the only interesting thing is that he only gets four songs A, and he uses two of those songs on sort of classic rock oldies covers. Like he only, yep. he four slots, he only plays two of his own songs. You know, the, people talk about being a generous lover. They talk about being a generous uh, sexual partner. Petty is being a generous uh, musical <laughs> partner to Bob Dylan here. But even when he has the chance to flex and be like, you know what? This is actually like I've got the stage and I've got the upper hand as a as a musical commodity. He he does something like Bye Bye Johnny where he's like, I love the old stuff. I'm here to play the that Johnny be good music. And, uh, I think that clearly kind of illustrates what he like felt his role. Like he, even though he was probably drawing more people to the show or or certainly at least as many people to the show as Bob was. And he was kind of like, you know, near the peak of his all time stardom at this moment in time. Like he didn't want to be upstaging Bob fucking Dylan, even at Bob's like kind of like close to his like bottom of the barrel period. Extremely graceful. And, and frankly, uh, is just a classy and well, uh, I don't know. It's, it's really a lot of grace there as an artist, a lot of generosity to Bob Dylan and raised him up, uh, where, where he didn't, where another artist might've taken that a cheap shot to sort of be like, I'm just as good as, as Bob. Um, you really sense him stepping aside a bit. Um, in an intentional way. And, yeah. and that's partly why, you know, Petty is, is such a great artist in his own right is that he, he really does care about this stuff and he does care about the provenance and you know, that he knows he's standing on the shoulders of people before him. Yeah. I interviewed his, um, his tour manager for like basically his entire career. And he said that even, even at the point where Petty could almost consider himself a peer, I mean, certainly commercially, if not more so like he, right. For both Dylan, but you know everyone, the Birds, etc. He was just like kind of stayed a fanboy, even you know until the very end. And like um, you know, in the Wilburys, like some people, you know, like Harrison, more or less, figured themselves at the same level. And Petty was almost like uh, you know the, the 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 younger brother or something, right? Yeah, the like just excited to be there and so happy and like in awe of all these amazing people. Tom Petty, good guy. Wait, who's the manager of uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreak? Uh, the guy I talked to was the tour manager, uh, Richard Fernandez. He was from 78 up through uh, the end. And he uh, he tour managed this tour, which is why I was talking to him. And he also tour managed the first, oh, wow. three, first three years of the never-ending tour because Petty was taking a break from the road. So he was there for oh. wow. 88 through 91, I think. So, But it seems like Bob and Tom are just, like, real tight. Like, I mean, to the whole... Uh, tour here and then into um, the Wilburys. It seems like just nothing but good vibes. And they apparently were just hanging out off stage too. This guy also had this story where he said one time, I don't know, in like the nineties or something, 
Tom started playing this song. I think it's called Something Big. It wasn't a song I knew, but it was like this guy's favorite song. And it's a real deep cut. He's like, oh, like, why are you, you know, I love this song. Why are you playing this random old song that like no one knows? And Tom said, oh yeah, you know, Bob came over last week and he was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm figuring out songs to do on the tour. Bob's like, what about something big? I really like that song. And so then Tom Petty's like, all right, for the first time ever, 20 years later, I got to start playing something big. I, this uh, is off topic. So I, I mean, isn't it just wild that we don't have Tom Petty anymore, but we still got Bob? Who could yeah. have seen that coming? It's pretty pretty heavy. Bob is uh, going to be the last uh, last Wilbury standing before too long. Oh. It hurts like never Jeff Lynch. <laughs> An honorary Jim Keltner. That's true. Yeah, and Jim. Keltner's going strong. Yeah. Jim and Jeff. Um, what's it? What was Keltner's? He was a Sideberry, right? He wasn't a Wilbur. Yeah, he was, he was a Sideberry. Yeah, George. Yeah. He, he told me that George, like George, tried to make him a Wilbury because at that point he was he was almost more George's guy than he was Bob's. And he's like, what no, you no, get, no. What happens when you become a Wilbury? Like, how do you do? You get knighted. <laughs> you have to get into a, a hot rod and uh race down the empty LA river uh riverbed and then you got to uh, go to Mel's diner and order everything on the menu <laughs> yeah, exactly. slurp a big milkshake with your sweetie baby from across the table all right uh those songs were great straight in the darkness great um and then now- we got the uh the acoustic section here from bob comes out for mostly just himself here for a pretty extended period of time honestly we've got a 9 minute version of hard rain we've got a 5 minute version of north country and we've got a 7 and a half minute version of it's all right ma so he's got this almost is a like chunk. A half an hour yeah this is a solid chunk yeah just it sounds like bob on the stage with the acoustic guitar and that's about it yeah and i mean this is near near the end of him doing like really solo acoustic stuff. Like if right. he would do stuff with GE and other people, you know, like one other acoustic guitarist, but a few years from now, he's not doing solo acoustic anymore and basically never has, has since. Right. It's a really poignant uh, version of hard rain. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really pretty, like kind of like sad version of hard rain. I, yeah. I really like this one. Yeah. And uh, sad is right. There's something, about these three songs where I think you really get like a peek inside of Bob Dylan at this moment where he's at feeling like I'm standing on top of all this immortal material. Like what happens when I break it out and how am I going to treat this breaking it out in the context of this otherwise casual fun time show that we're putting on. Um, And I think it's just kind of, fascinating this moment when when he breaks out hard rain and you i just get the sense of how profound the song is and how it 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 has the power like there's just power buried within this song where like you can tell that the crowd i feel like is swept up a little bit in just this emotive strength of of this music and these lyrics yeah, I mean, you think about like how a song like that sort of transcends its origins. Like this is slow, beautiful, hard rain is overall not the vibe of this show. And if you, there's videos of some of this show and, you know, 
you're listening to this and you picture him and he's wearing a sleeveless t-shirt with a black leather vest over it. He's got earrings. He's got amulets. He's got leather gloves, like, you know, a biker. Looking cool. Looking like cool in the most <laughs> 80s way possible. And then he's like just doing this beautiful, you know, this beautiful solo acoustic stuff. And it still works. These lyrics, when it, it's like a spell, like they just kind of are magic in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so admirable about Bob, you know, one of uh, too many things to count, but just like his willing, like anytime he wanted, he could have he could have come out in 1986 and played a 13 song set that was all material from like 1963 to 1966. And the crowd would have gone fucking wild and he would have sold out stadiums across the world and it would have been like rapturous reviews and stuff. But he's still willing to bolt himself to Tom Petty here and start off this set with Justine, Positively 4th Street, Clean Cut Kid, I'll Remember You, and Trust Yourself, and That Lucky Old Son. And just like completely like either new stuff or like, you know, covers of really old, like just completely go in a different direction and not need to pander to the audience too much. Um, but then when he, you know, wants to not pander necessarily, that might be, um, uh, too sharp of a term, but, you know, remind people that he's Bob fucking Dylan, he can still do that and just blow everyone away, which is what he's doing at this moment. Yeah. And then the next song, Girl from the North Country, I basically feel the same way. <laughs> yes. And, and here's where we get some of the first Bob editorializing. Uh, maybe we can pipe some of this in here in post. Uh, but he says something like, um, at the end of North Country into It's All Right, Ma, uh, says something like, um, Well, I just read another concert review the other day. It said Bob sounds like a parody of himself. He sounds just exactly like he's imitating himself. I should like to know who, uh, who I'm supposed to sound like. I know it's hard, you know, so many people sound like me these days. Someday, somebody's got to tell some of these people that I'm still here. A lot of the, a lot of the rock critics out there uh, are unhappy with me. They're, they're saying I, uh, I sound like an imitation of myself. A parody, uh, he says, as, a parody I sound exactly myself, yeah. like a parody of myself. Yeah. And then he asked the crowd, uh, if I don't sound like myself, uh, who, who am I supposed to sound like? Uh, and then, does he and ask they, the crowd that or does he ask himself well, that? Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe a good, good point. Maybe, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, but then they whoop and holler and he says something about people. There, there's too many people out there sounding like him. So um, it, uh, it makes sense that he would sound or yeah, the, the rock kind of would be che- happy with him or something. A cheeky thing like, so it's hard these days. So many people sound like me. If I could he's sound like been, someone else, I would. You know, he's, he's well, That's what I love. Not only is he joking, but like he's delivering these self-deprecating jokes from the stage. Totally. Like, when does that ever happen? That he's like poking fun <laughs> at himself in this great. And you get he doesn't he, he doesn't just say specific, generally that rock critics are saying this. He says, I literally I was reading a concert review the other day, which yeah, is like yeah. it's hard to imagine, you know, many instances where he acknowledges that like I literally, you know, after the show, like the next day, I got the local paper, <laughs> like right. reading what they thought about it, which seems He's so been reading un, the un Bob Dylan. Yeah, he was it's reading the, the, it's comments, the biggest mistake. Yeah. Never read. Don't the do it, Bob. <laughs> I mean, I, there is something to that little um, 
that that bit of, of banter he does that feels uh like very vulnerable like Dylan in another era would never feel the need to comment on that yeah I think both before this era and, and after, after this yeah. era he wouldn't feel the feel like ever even be interested in doing this uh but just this particular moment in time as he's kind of moving towards the absolute nadir you know like the absolute dip this is like he's clearly starting to like feel the walls uh, close in on him a little bit. Uh, uh, I feel bad for him. It all worked out. I don't need to feel bad for Bob Dylan, but it's just you know it's it's nice. It's it's cute to see like this action. Like you really get a glimpse of his humanity in this set in this moment in time. Yeah, there's more there's more self doubt than you normally see, and I think totally. this show and this tour it manifests itself well and he's really trying to prove himself. But pretty soon after, he just seems like he gets subsumed with it and you get the dead and the late 80s, you know, pre-O Mercy albums and it kind of seems yeah, like it, it takes up. over him. But this is kind of like a like a turning point where it's still powering him, but it doesn't last for long. Yeah. He even makes that little comment like, Some, somebody's, somebody's got to tell these people, I'm still here. I'm still here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and later when he's he's introducing Empire Burlesque, he's like, I think it's already out of print in America or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I don't know if this is out in in uh, Australia. I think it's out of print in America. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, a year, less than a year, I think, since it came out. Yeah. And then he's got, um, uh, right before he launches into It's All Right, Ma, he says, and I can't sound like anybody else. I don't know how to. If I did, I would. If I could sound like someone else, I would. Yeah. And then he plays It's All Right, Ma. I think the the weakest of these three, just in terms of like the general effect, it's still good. But um, I don't know. There's something about A Hard Rain and Girl from the North Country that hold up like a little better. I, I like this one maybe more than you do. And I sort of agree. The others are a little more slow and sensitive. And this one's almost like kind of acoustic punk rock. Like he's just slamming the yeah. hell out of those guitar yeah. chords and just rattling the lyrics off. And so, you know, I can see why uh, <laughs> subtlety is in many cases not the at the forefront of this show. And I think that's true for this song, too. But I, but I kind of like it for that reason. It's like even though it's solo acoustic, it's high energy. I, I can see that. I think he gives you a nice little sort of uh, poo-poo platter here, little little uh, little taster platter, uh, you know, appetizer combo of of all of the different heights of uh, acoustic classic Bob. Here, you've got uh, the long, verdant, uh, twisting poetry with hard rain. You've got the plaintive, beautiful, soft ballad with North Country, and then you've got the you know kind of uh, sharper edged, uh, you know, sixty-five acoustic material with uh, it's all right. He's given. He's he's touching he's hitting all the bases he's touching all of the uh, the high points there with some of the favorites, and then he leads into what was uh, I think one of the most uh, charming and wonderful this is, yeah, in- inclusions in this whole set. really maybe my favorite song on the entire set. Yeah, and and the way he sets up the next song, which is I've forgotten more than you'll ever know of self portrait fame, self portrait well of self portrait uh, inclusion. It's a famous song in its own right, right to Bob Dylan and apparently Tom Petty. He sets it up by saying this duet, which is another interesting and fun aspect. Um, he says, you know, you don't hear many real songs these days. Tom and I are going to sing a song for you that uh, we used to hear these songs all the time when we were growing up. You can't hear them anymore. 
Very seldom do you hear a real song anymore. But we were lucky to grow up when you could hear them all the time. All you had to do was just switch on the radio and you could hear them. to grow up in a time when me and Tom, we could just turn on the radio and you'd hear a song like this. Hear a real song. Real song, yeah. <laughs> and and those those high notes he does are really great. Like uh they really he really reaches some impressive little high notes that uh I don't know, it is a great song. And their voices together, it's like it's not an obvious duet song, but their voices together just blend beautifully. I almost wish they did a few more songs in the set kind of in this totally. framework. Yeah. I, I would almost like after hearing this, I would love to hear them do like half of the self portrait album together, just in this kind of sound and vibe, just cut co- like any of the cover songs from self portrait, just get them up there, get, get the boxer up there. That's what I was just thinking. One could do <laughs> the one part. Imagine yeah, Bob exactly. Dylan and Tom Petty and the heartbreakers perform self portrait. Like it would be amazing. <laughs> they would just juice up all the songs that are, need it, and like, little I don't Sadie, know. I think, yeah, it would be the great. other Sadie. Days of Forty Nine. That they would, would have a had a great all time. The the house down. Just the two of them a cappella opening the show. Yeah. The tattoos and the sun. How am I supposed to? Get? We must talk about. You know, we we did talk about the the part where Dylan says, "You know, I sound just like a parody of myself." It is true. That at this period, Dylan sounds, he's leaning harder on that, like, parody. I would say the the version of Bob Dylan that people end up parodying is the version. Right, that that really kind of reedy, sharp, nasally, almost whining kind of tone. Yeah, like if you got a buddy who does a bad Dylan impression. Ian, Ian, just imagine, stretch your imagination as far as it could go. Imagine if I did a bad Bob Dylan impersonation. I think your Bob impersonation is more focused on like the um, uh, the theme time era Bob. Like that. That's yeah. Uh, it's, that's what it's you're a, focused on. It's a catch all version that doesn't really uh, lean into the reality, but it's about the spirit in a specific era. Timeless. But in this, at this time, Timeless. it seems yeah. It's basically what I do is a fine art. What. Uh, <laughs> Dylan is doing here, it, it is just his inflection. It's not even necessarily like the, no, it's everything. It really is that like, um, and it's something that people notice at the time, apparently. And that Dylan probably, I don't know. I don't know that he could have stopped doing it that way, but it is what it is. And it is what it is. And you do hear that all over this, and and it it even is like the choice of inflection that he would the the choice of emphasis on certain vowel sounds. It's stuff like that. It goes all across the board. It is that like 
sort of classic cartoonish Dylan vocalizing, which isn't permanent. No. I think, you know, I, I think this is like right before it got, you know, uh, we talked about this, you know, in, in other regards already, like with his recording output and the tour with the dead and just wheel mode and all that. But like, this is like right before he kind of really started tapering off. Uh, like, you know, the, up until this point, I think he's doing okay. But after this, like the further this kind of vocal delivery and, and um, performance style goes, it diminishing returns uh to say the least i mean maybe it's what we were talking about with his self-doubt too where it's like he's still kind of fighting against some limitations here and i think to me that's what gives this set some of its power and energy right but the limitations are there and uh he sort of stops fighting for a little while yeah yeah i mean that's that's kind of the drama of so many great shows is i think that a lot of shows are i said this before that a lot of live shows that you go and see that feel empty, they don't have friction. They don't have drama. And this show has a lot of that. And so it's really never, there's not really a dull moment if you're invested in the story of Bob Dylan and you're invested in, in where this appears in his career. There's so much here, like, uh, to dig your teeth into, um, his greatest show ever, according to, uh, one Bob Dylan expert on the other. <laughs> it's the greatest uh, show where he played I've Forgotten More Than You'll Ever Know and also uh, That Lucky Old Son. That Lucky Old Son, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> also probably his uh, worst show when he played both of those together. Good, yeah, by default. Good point. Next uh, we've well, got... So the first, uh, yeah, first disc here, wrapping up with uh, three more here. Um before we move on to the whole second disc, this is a big uh, jumbo set, 30 songs. This, this is like a two and a half hours concert, it seemed like. Um, just Like a Woman. Uh, it's a good one, version of Just Like a Woman. We know this one. We love to hear it. I think this is one of the better live versions of Just Like a Woman that I've heard that still cleaves pretty closely to the boilerplate version of the song. Mm-hmm. That's, like, I, think I mean, this is one of the better ones. Like compared to, doesn't he play this on um, Before the Flood? Or am I thinking uh, of Budokan? I think I, th- I, I'm almost positive he does. It, it's on Budokan. Um, There's that one on Budokan that is kind of like probably is. It's it's a little boring compared to the rest of the stuff on Budokan. I fu- I think this is a, just like a really good version. I mean, I think just like a woman is on this set, it kind of is emblematic of what I think kind of works in the arena rock aspect of it, where he does the greatest hits and they're close enough that you're going to recognize them. If you're a casual fan, you're going to get it. You can sing along if you want, but it feels, you know, it doesn't feel rote. It feels fresh. It's high energy. So it's, you know, he doesn't walk that balance often. Usually he's just off doing his own thing, but if he's going to walk it, I think, you know, with these hits, I think he does a good job. Does a good job. Yeah. I gotta say, just like a woman, you know, I, it's, it's good. I, I don't know that I'm ever in like a, just like a woman mood, at least when I'm listening to like a live set. It, it's always one that I'm like, Oh, you know, this is nice. She's just like a woman. And you know, maybe I'm overrating it. I might be it's, overrating it's it a little just, slightly, but because of that, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm maybe a little more interested in the last couple songs on this, uh, certainly the last song on this first disc here, uh, the, <laughs> yeah. in between Just Like a Woman and that last song. You don't song. say. 
with an incredible intro, we should say, um, is I'm moving on. I'm guessing, Ray, you probably know, is this another one of these uh, retro, uh, old, oldster, uh, you know, yeah. uh, rootin' tootin' rockabilly tracks here? Sure enough, uh, Hank Snow, the original, it was a big country single in the 50s. Um, there we go. Yeah, so, I mean, 50s is really, he's drawing, going to that well a lot on the, on right. the covers. And this one also we'll, stuck with we'll him for a while. Him. He played it in uh, some of the first years of the Never Ending Tour, 88 and I think 93, too. Oh, interesting. The man is a machine. Um, Actually, this one is, this one, something we haven't really talked about yet, but this song, if people, when people listen, is a great example, is that it's not just Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. There are also the Queens of Rhythm. The Queens of Rhythm. brought a a gospel style, you know, gospel tour style group of backing singers. And uh, (laughs) some songs like this, they practically take the lead. Like they're not, I don't think they're on all the songs. They're probably only on half of them, but they are a powerful presence when they are on stage. That is a good point. Yeah. He's, uh, he's definitely still in the era of using and perhaps overusing, uh, in certain, in certain situations, uh, backup singers to gussy up some of the uh, production. I think here, like this set and this, this era, it, it, it comes off, especially with the, like, you know, the tight, um, tightness of the heartbreakers to sort of power things through here. Uh, but yeah, this is like a, this is almost like a, like it almost sounds like a like a musical break in some sort of like review, you know, sort of like stage show sort of thing. Like this is this is what plays when the lights go down and like the set is being changed and like different actors are coming in and off stage. Like it's just sort of a fun, um, like uh, you know, the palate cleanser almost. Yeah, it could uh, almost be it could almost be like a finale. Like in in the second yeah. Rolling Thunder tour, they ended all the shows with "Gotta Travel On" and it was a big sort right. of rousing sing along number and this this comes you know kind of in the middle but it it could function in the same way yeah i'm moving on it's fun moving on from uh moving on lenny bruce one of the best versions of lenny bruce i've ever (laughs) i think you texted me like all-timer version of lenny bruce (laughs) I, i really i stand by that i think it's really special and part of the specialness is that Dylan gives it a really good intro. A really touching intro, absolutely. Here's a song I wrote a while back about one of America's, one of most America's greatest forgotten men. This man was just a little bit before his time. He said some things that got him into trouble with the wrong people. But there's a lot of people right now saying a lot of things much worse than he ever could have dreamed of. And of course, they're making millions of dollars. And they've got nice houses and drive fast cars. And they've got lots of pretty women. He didn't have none of that stuff at all. kind of intro that I think this song needs to really lift it up from feeling goofy. And um, that's something that it took us a long time on this program to really wrap our heads around. 
we've been working, we've been we've been growing, we've been listening, and we are here to acknowledge the uh, the the changes uh, that we have uh, undergone, and now can appreciate Lenny Bruce as the beautiful masterpiece that it is. This version, especially. Yeah. He doesn't, unfortunately, explain the uh, the baby's headline. <laughs> that's that's one of the great things about it, right? The baby's headline, the pants and shirts. Some of these, you know, it just, you got to take the good with the bad. It's all it's all part of the, the same rich, beautiful tapestry. Lenny Bruce never cut off no baby's head. It is true, and he certainly was more of an outlaw than you ever yeah. were. Some people did this song. One thing he doesn't specify is that he's talking to Genghis Khan. This song is addressed to Genghis Khan, <laughs> and he says, look, Lenny Bruce is more of an outlaw than you ever were, and he didn't even ever cut off any baby's head. Right. Uh, so why don't you put that in your pipe and smoke it? <laughs> Genghis Khan. Really nice, uh, beautiful version. They really take their time with it. I think the backing vocals really, really help here. Just like the backing vocals really help on the mix on um, Springtime in New York, I think that version is even better than um, what you get on Shot of Love. Just the, like the more dramatic, the more just like, this is already a ridiculous, absurd, batshit kind of song. Like make it as ridiculous, as absurd, as batshit as you can. Just blow it out. You can't get it too big. That's how the song needs to be presented. And like Bob is so into the vocal by the end of this, like like he's almost at the top of his register. He can barely even hit the notes, but like, oh, (laughs) it's so good. Lenny Bruce was bad. (laughs) Well, and he's got, Uh, you know, given that he still has sort of gospel singers, he doesn't do a whole lot of the gospel era songs in the show. Like there's only a couple, but it feels like when he does, Lenny Bruce, and there's another one near the end, like he really makes it count. Yes. Lenny Bruce. We love it. I like that the, there's guitars on it. I don't know. It's just one of the best versions of this song there are. One of the best <laughs> versions of one of the best songs. One of the best songs about Lenny the Bruce. Best <laughs> uh, well, that will do it for uh, disc one of this uh, lengthy uh, uh, double, triple, whatever, uh, bootleg, true confessions for Carol. Uh, Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, would you like to plug any of your, uh, any of your ventures a little bit better than, uh, I might have at the beginning of the set? Uh, sure. Yeah. The, the live Dylan newsletter is flagging down the double E's. I've interviewed a whole bunch of old band members and stuff and I write other stuff too. I'm actually, uh, it probably won't be out by the time this goes up, but I'm interviewing Ben Montench on uh, Thursday. Oh, whoa! So yeah. uh, that'll that'll be coming down the pike. It takes me a month or two to do these, but to, you know, transcribe them. But that, to, that'll be coming pretty soon. I can't wait for him to break down the entire creative process behind Duquesne Whistle. <laughs> that that's all I'm going to ask him about. Murder Most Powerful. <laughs> no, thank you, Tom Petty. No, just Duquesne. This is a Duquesne Whistle pod. This is a Tempest podcast. Can you ask him why is that your name? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think he goes by Ben to people who know him. I've had a few people refer to him as Ben, and he signed his email to me, Ben Mont. So I'm not going to call him Ben, but I think uh, he might go by Ben to people who know him. Incredible name, one of the best names of all time. <laughs> Tench. That alone, forget Ben Mont. Tench. <laughs> That's I'm bearing the lead. Tench. Tench. <laughs> 
Yes. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> join us next time, folks. We've got a whole other disc to get to uh, here on Tenchmen. Perfect. They said that he was sick Cause he didn't play by the rules He just showed the wise men of that day to be loved